Welcome to The Coda, a music podcast and the perfect endnote to your week. I'm Rob Christofferson, and with me, he's the rye cooter to my Buena Vista social club and the Nathaniel Ratliff to my night sweats, Brian Hasty. Brian, how you doing, bud? I love that intro. Like, I was not expecting that at all. Like, you did not take that in an obvious place, and Rob, I appreciate that. Thank you. I try to keep it young and fresh here, man. That's our thing, young and fresh. <laughs> young and fresh uh, by referencing Ryder Hooter. Yes, yes. I see the dichotomy here. <laughs> <laughs> all the kids these days on TikTok. Ryder Hooter is timeless. How dare you? <laughs> I would love for you to start the Ryder Hooter wave. Uh, you know, I think we can d- work on this. I really think we can. Maybe if I was better with video content and I could put my, you know, his music to a video, kind of like Lil Nas X, we could probably get this fucking revolution going. We'd have to pay influencers, though. We would have to pay influencers, but how much would we have to pay influencers? Because, like, remember, he's broke and sitting on his sister's couch, apparently in his underwear, so... (laughs) These are very, very pertinent points, Uh, and he's also posting on Reddit, theoretically, right, so... Right, yeah, he's definitely a Reddit poster. Like, I don't even know if that entrepreneur stuff, I don't even know if that's a real account. I haven't done any investigative work yet, so we're going to So see. you're taking Little Nas X, like, at face value. Yeah, pretty much. Like, he seems like a straight-laced, honest kind of guy. What you're saying is, that, like, we're not the outlet for this. No, we're definitely not the outlet for this. Like, the last time in music journalism I saw the really cutthroat stuff was a uh, interview that Nick Cave was giving to Alternative Press in 2007 when he released the first Grinderman album. And uh, he openly kind of threatened the uh, interviewer. And, That's fine. Yeah. And That's fine. He literally just said one thing. I, I, or at one point, uh, I just want to punch you in the face. It's <laughs> great. I actually saw uh, Grinderman on their Grinderman 2 tour in 2000, late 2010, and it's the first and only time I've ever seen where there was a genuine encore that occurred because people were sticking around. And the ha- like the house lights were on, and they came back out and like spontaneously played a song, and I was like, this is super organic. You never see this anymore. No, you never see that anymore. Like That doesn't even seem like something Nick Cave would do. Which was super, yeah, exactly. It seemed like he's like the good nights were said, the lights came up, and like people were still like clamoring for him to return, and so like everyone did. That's wild, man. That is wild. I dig it. What though. does Nick Cave smell like? What do you think? Like we <laughs> talked about Thomas Wright. What does Nick Cave smell like? Hair gel. <laughs> uh, and like the faint like scent of like someone who's smoked, but not for a while. Yeah, exactly. It's it just lingers on you, like it lingers <laughs> on your clothes, and as someone who launders things for a living uh especially with old relapse smokers uh their clothes tend to retain a lot of that so i gag on it i don't like it but uh you know uh perhaps perhaps we should transition here to the reason why we're here brian we could and that's to uh talk about music related things so uh to start things off uh, A&R teams at record labels seem they're searching for new artists and that search can be daunting. They will often sift through thousands of songs a week to find the diamonds in the rough 
Uh, but one label is trying to change that. Snafu Records, launched in 2018 by Ankit Desai, a former digital strategist for Capitol Records and Universal Music Group, seeks out its artists using an algorithm. This algorithm narrows down 150,000 songs by undiscovered artists per week, down to 15 to 20 of them. Uh, And it uses such analyzing factors like song growth and fan engagement and uh, positive YouTube comments, which I don't even know what those are, to be honest with you, and uh, how similar its content is to the Spotify Top 200 which uh, is kind of suspicious there. But uh, in essence, the label is trying to find a faster approach to sign artists before the bigger labels can, and even before an artist can hit TikTok fame status. Brian, uh, let's... uh, I want to gauge here. What's your TikTok fame status right now? Zero. Zero. Zero to zero. zero. Okay. Okay, I thought... So just to let you know, yeah. yeah. I, haven't, I haven't put up a video in a little while, and I need to remedy that, so I'm going to do that. Uh, but yes, right now, uh, uh, Snafu would not sign me. Okay. Uh, we're both at... Uh, I'm at, like, a negative two, so <laughs> I'll work on that. But once you post content, you'll be at a zero. You'll be joining me as a zero. Yeah, I can't wait to be a zero with you, man. It's going to be great. <laughs> uh, just, you know, I, very viscerally, my first reaction to this is that uh, this is a bad idea. You think so? Let me explain to you why, okay. right? So if you're scanning um, and comparing your music to what's on the Spotify 200, you're actually creating a very uh, homogeneous um, roster of acts that may be hot currently, but like 18 to 24 months from now, who knows what that sounds like, right? Yeah. So basically what you're doing right now is you're trading in very, very, very short-term trends. Um, and you and I can both agree uh, uh, longevity of a record isn't what it used to be, right? Uh, compared to... Uh, a traditional in our model, which itself is imperfect, and you and I have discussed that, um, you know, on Twitter together. Um, but I feel like, yeah, this is a very of the moment. Let's capture this now and just get through it, kind of 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 do, of move. Yeah, I I agree. And and the uh, other AR execs at record labels kind of agree with you there. They do employ some algorithms in their searches to find new artists, but uh, they uh, many of them that. Uh, the writer of this Rolling Stone article talked to uh, said that you, there is no replacement for the human ear and there's no way that an algorithm can really fully 100% find new talent. Uh, uh, but Snafu's creative director, Carl Flock, um, who has penned and produced tracks for artists like Nicki Minaj and One Direction, stresses the importance of the human ear, stating... Quote, it would be a mistake if we only looked at the numbers. So, you know, it's a, it's a good point. But I tend to agree with you that if you're merely looking at the Spotify top 200, you're not going to differentiate your content. And I don't think that the Spotify 200 is a good gauge on what an artist's future output is going to be. Like... We don't know what Lil Nas X is really going to do beyond yeah. Old Town Road. I mean, like, Panini's doing okay as a follow-up single, but it's nowhere near Old Town Road, right? No. Nowhere close. And as we talked about in last episode, there's a little bit of, you know, marketing maneuvering there to boost it to the level that it was at. And considering that he just gamed the system anyway, I mean, 
One thing that I don't think we acknowledged uh, when we talked about that last episode is that there are some factors that if they hadn't panned out, there's no way that uh, Old Town Road would have even made it to number one. Like it being removed from the country charts is kind of a it was a lucky move. Yeah, it was a it was a, an interest multiplier. Yeah, exactly. And if that hadn't happened, wouldn't have made it to number one to begin with. Uh, beside that, you know, he definitely maneuvered that song in order to get extra play. So I wonder if more artists in the future are going to attempt to do that. Because if the A&R execs at, you know, Capitol Records or Universal Music Group are paying attention to that, which they probably aren't, then, man, they, they... You would think that they'd be able to, I don't know, somehow formulate that and make it into something that's kind of sustainable that they could use in the future. Hand in hand with the way that in which uh, major labels are now licensing albums on a shorter term basis and artists are owning more and more of their masters at the same time, like there's this like push and pull between uh, the establishment and the artists themselves, right? Like the, the tools in which you use to get uh, famous or quasi famous um, are shifting, right? So it's a question of like how do you make your short-term buck and i feel like snafu is really in it for that for now because like i don't know what their years-long game plan looks like i don't even know if they know what that looks like either no not at this point i mean it's kind of weird that they have like data specialists in their a and r department but like uh I mean, the thing is like as we were circling back to is like the human element trumps everything else right so the idea of you know them saying like yeah we still have these people listening to make sure they're like it's not just like a robot picking out um uh these uh b- bands for us right like they go from like hundreds of thousands down to 20 like the, how insane is that to me that like you may be missing something yeah it's too much it would seem is falling through the cracks but I applaud them for trying something different because, I mean, the approach is to hit these unsigned artists relatively quickly. So uh, according to the article, uh, most of the time, a new artist will come on a big record label's radar somewhere four to six weeks out of, after a song is released. And apparently Snafu has gotten it down to like two to nine days, which, yeah, that that's pretty great. But still, if you're just narrowing that down to this tiny thing. And honestly, who fucking uses YouTube comments? Positive YouTube yeah. comments. Like, how is that a metric? That the is- C-section is never a good place to go. No. 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 This sort of reminds me of the life cycle of um, they're trying to they're sort of treating this in the, in the same way that someone would treat a meme almost that like hits big right because this the life cycle of a meme is infinitely um, shorter than it used to be too right so I feel like they're using um, a lot of metrics of what has come before in order to predict what will happen but music unlike other sorts of like um, more well established uh, ways of living uh, uh, it doesn't work like that necessarily right and given that. We've gone from a system that were required or really survived on sales numbers now to streaming numbers. It's much harder for a song and even an album to have any kind of longevity. It's it just, hey, we hit number one and then poof, gone. I, when was the last time an album hit number one on the billboard 200 and like stayed there for a while i couldn't tell you i i want to say maybe 
The only one that comes to mind is probably Adele's 25. And Yes, but that was way, 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 way before the last five or six years, right? Yeah. Like, no, I mean, it's 2016, but like... Yeah. So I'm looking at this now. Um, uh, 21 was uh, number one for 24 weeks. Holy crap. Yeah, and that's the last one. Before that was The Sound of Music. Uh, yeah, there's not a ton here. Yeah, no, there, there's, I mean, in, like, it's easier to do it in very specific genre charts, but, I mean, how many weeks was Traveler by Chris Stapleton number one in the country charts? It's like, not almost a like, couple of weeks. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was, uh, it was hanging in there for a while. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, um, you know, oh, this is a great stat, actually. So, uh, This House Is Not For Sale, the last Bon Jovi record, went from w- number one to number 169 um, in March 2018. Um, wow. Yeah, that's a perfect encapsulation of kind of where we are in the music industry. Wow, a lot of these went really down really quickly. So, I, I'll just very quickly. So, um, uh, Celine Dion's Courage uh, went from 1 to 111 uh, in one week. Brand New Science Fiction went from 1 to 97. Brock Hampton's Iridescence from 2018 went from 1 to 88. Madonna's Madam X last summer went from 1 to 77. And these are all, like, super recent. Like, the, the oldest one here is 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 Bon Jovi's um, at 2016. God damn. And nobody likes Bon Jovi. Let's be honest. No, like there's like two good songs, maybe, right? <laughs> yeah, and like they're they're from Slippery, you know, when wet. We can all admit that. Like, and also like the 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 single from Bon Jovi's like solo album. Yeah, like Janie, don't you take your love to town? Yep. Yeah, that's like that was a pretty decent song. But uh, apart from that, yeah, I don't. You know what? Uh, the Coda Podcast on Twitter. Let us know about your hot takes about Bon Jovi. Yes, <laughs> because I feel like we may have angered one or two people out there. How much do you miss Richie Sambora? Let's be honest. Zero. <laughs> Z- zero. It makes no difference to me. It make, I'm not the target demo. It makes no difference to Brian, but that's, you know, that's that's the way it is. Transitioning into our next story, uh, and this is a follow-up story from episode three. Uh, it appears that Murphy, the Wisconsin-based CD storage and digital media company, has been purchased. On January 23rd, John Fenley, the owner of Crossies.com, announced that he had purchased Murphy and has revived the failing company under the Crossies name, which is a physical media digital storage company similar to Murphy. Uh, in a letter to Murphy customers, Fenley stated, quote, Relax. A plan is in place and your media is safe and secure. End quote. Fenley said that he would honor all returns requested by former Murphy customers, but urged that he would be setting up a digital platform and could ensure storage of disks. According to the purchase agreement, Fenley purchased Murphy for $6,000 plus an additional $2,000 for attorney's fees. As a part of the agreement, Murphy's debtors agreed to release the company from all previous debts. Fenley stated that he was shook to his core when he read the original Verge article and felt the need to spring into action. Brian, is Fenley the hero that Murphy customers need but don't deserve? So, A couple of things, Rob. Firstly, uh, I don't know uh, if you did the same thing I did. When I first read the article, I thought it said Crossley as in the provider of uh, turntables, etc. Yes. So I was very excited. Yes, uh, I did. Have you visited the Crossley's website? I haven't. Okay, Rob, um, he is live on Twitch right now. No. Coding, yes. 
I just opened. So there's very awkward videos um, on here. I'm going to start sharing my screen with you just to let you see this. Okay. Holy God. So, yeah, he's in the Murphy warehouse right now um, uh, doing some kind of coding, looks like, but I don't know what it is. I don't either. I'm kind of... I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah, this is... Uh, he's doing this for four people. Um, also, there's a ton of, like, really awkward videos of him on the, the site. Um, so I suggest everyone head over to crossies.com to check out all of his, like, full um, inventory there to see what he's up to. Oh, my God. <laughs> So yeah, just just for you, Rob, I thought I'd figure I'd, I'd share that with you because this is just uh, you know this is what insane people do. This is what insane people do, and this is how far we've come. How long do you think Crossy's going to be able to sustain this? Oh my god, I was thinking about that today, and like maybe six months, maybe it's it's just a big question if he can get this audio player up up, you know, and like and and sort of like uh, be able to share that app in the appropriate markets, like. The people still using Crossies and Murphy, these are the hangers-on, Brian. These are the yeah. ones that are not willing to go to streaming services. And now, you know, the streaming services need them now more than ever because what we're finding is that they're start, the numbers are starting to stagnate and they're starting to drop a little bit. So, you know... So here's my suggestion, everyone out there, okay? So if you're on Crossy slash Murphy, right, get yourself a Plex uh, pay subscription so that way you can access your um, streaming services wherever you can based on, like, making sure that your computer's on. I would I would back that 100%. Now, I, here's the thing. I don't know if you folks know this. If you have a laptop or if you have a computer, uh, unless you're like dealing with an Apple device, uh, I want to tell you about this thing. It's called the disk drive. And now all you really have to do is you need to open up that disk drive, put that CD in there, close it, get yourself a program like iTunes, and you can rip it to your own computer. I just saved Rob, you. Rob, th- I, hate, I hate to sound pedantic, but it's actually not called iTunes anymore, bro. It is on my computer. It's always going to be <laughs> iTunes. I don't care. Yeah, I still haven't updated yet, but it's technically like the Apple Music, you know, vertical. Listen, we don't I, need to get into the semantics of this, Brian. I am right, still right. a diehard iTunes. Brian, I'm gonna. I want to. I want to open this up to a game here. I want to ask you, how much money do you think from 2004 to oh, no. about 2016? How much money do you think I spent on iTunes? <sighs> shit uh, um, uh, uh, um, hmm. uh, is it three digits or four it's um, it's probably closer to five Rob Christopherson music diehard ladies and gentlemen uh, I'm going to insert some sound effects of people clapping because that my friend is a dedication to fucking music it, <laughs> you're damn right it was when I heavily relied. You went ham on iTunes. I heavily relied on iTunes and my iPod up until I got my iPhone eight. So like two years ago, I stopped buying new music in 2016. I got by with what I had, and uh, at that time, I was really listening to more podcasts than anything. Uh, but like, I don't. My iPod is dead. Like, it literally died on me one day. And it was, like, the bigger one, the 180 gig. And I uh, I was heartbroken. I uh, 
I had a funeral for it, Brian. It was it was very touching. I did you Viking funeral it? I wanted to. Uh, I could have because I mean my neighbors are burning things all the time. They burn things in winter, Brian, and it's not even the burning season. So I could have set up a funeral pyre, but I didn't. I uh, I put it in a shoebox. I made it you know as comfortable as it could and dropped it in the trash. I uh, I think I still have my dead one here because I had something similar like the hard drive just stopped booting up. Yeah. Um. So I feel like I have like one of the older like the newer gen like the Gen Five or the Gen Six the One Twenty Eights that just uh, you know died on me. RIP. So I feel you. I did not have a funeral for mine. I uh, instead kept it in stasis. Right. It's like Schrodinger's cat. If I don't you know try to use it, is it really dead? Uh, yeah. You got a point there. You, you pretty much you know Walt Disney in that cryogenic chamber. <laughs> Except for yeah, an iPod I probably spent like 150 bucks on. Yes, exactly. Ah <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, so so beautiful. Uh, Brian, I think it's time to get angry again. And oh, God damn it! I, okay, let's do this. Just uh, just get yourself ready. Um, Rob, yes. If you have to spend fucking hours and hours on the internet explaining how something works. You fucked up. <laughs> You've definitely fucked up big time. So, uh, what Brian is referring to here is that uh, Ticketmaster has struck again. Uh, and fans anticipating the release of tickets for Rage Against the Machines reunion tour with Run the Jewels found themselves in lengthy queues and paying high prices for tickets similar to those purchasing them for My Chemical Romance. Ah, oh, man. Prices for nosebleed seats started at 125 fucking dollars. Absolutely fucking ridiculous. If I... Okay, here's the correlation. If I went to the Saratoga Performing Arts Center, which is the closest venue to me that any of these like bigger bands play in like you get the same guys pretty much every year you got your dave matthews bands you've got your brantley gilberts your um i think we had kenny chesney once jason aldean with his we back bullshit we back we back (laughs) so brilliant so brilliant but like if i was paying 125 dollars for a lawn seat I would have tried to got to get to Tom Morello myself and punch him in the fucking face. But uh, those that were seeking tickets when they finally made it through the lengthy waits for fucking hours, some people were waiting two two to five hours in the goddamn queue. They entered a world where prices were now incredibly high. Some were saying that nosebleed seats were going for as much as $1,000 a piece. Yeah, according to Rolling Stone, the band attempted to stymie scalpers by taking 10% of tickets in each venue, and these, I believe, were like... I think they were standing room only kind of tickets. There, well, so there's some some seats and some standards. I took a look at the Canadian dates just to get an idea myself of what it was like. So there's like... But yeah, they're either floor or they're like around the floor. Yeah. And they inflated the prices and are taking the proceeds and donating them to charity. Now, I'll give them props. They raised $3 million. Great for them. Fucked over a lot of fans in the process. But, you know, they also thought that having an even price point throughout the whole fucking stadium, except for the the venues through, uh, despite, you know, 
not including those other fucking tickets, would somehow fool scalpers, which I do not understand. That makes zero fucking sense. So, Rob, I actually the re, one of the reasons why I was taking like the Canadian gates is because the big argument is like, well, we price these charity tickets lower than StubHub. Not true. No, no, not true at all. Uh, but you know, Tom Barello, man, he took to fucking Twitter on Friday. Oh my god! Stating that the mo- Fra- no, uh, Rob, Rob, Friday. <laughs> I mean, Saturday. he's been at it all fucking Sunday. weekend. But today is Monday, and he's still doing yeah, it. Yeah, uh, we'll get there. <laughs> uh. He took to Twitter on Friday stating that the most expensive ticket was $125 plus nominal fees. But the exception of 10% of tickets in each venue being inflated slightly with proceeds being donated to charity. Morello was quick to blame scalpers, but fails to realize that Ticketmaster now facilitates scalpers on its own fucking site. And through third-party ticket sellers like StubHub. Uh, essentially, he spent all weekend trying to defend himself, and it hasn't gone very, very well. It appears that Morello wants to claim ignorance for Ticketmaster's pricing policies, but we all know better. Uh, the band that once raged against capitalism now embraces it, Brian. This is a sad fucking day for fucking bands, but like... <sighs> So yeah, so basically Tom Rowe spent all of his time on Twitter arguing with people over semantics when the thing is, and I discussed this last episode, this is not a model that's sustainable if you're anti-capitalist, right? Um, uh, I can't believe I'm about to say this, but I uh, found a thread on the PRP.com all about this, and uh, someone by the username Bloody Bonecomer um, uh, answered with the following, so they responded to the article about all this. I actually went to the venue in Kansas City on Thursday morning. It was minus 10 outside, so I layered up for the hour wait in the line to guarantee I got floor tickets. I got to the venue and was greeted with this at the ticket window, so it is a sign that says Rage Against the Machine tickets are available only online at SprintCenter.com. Wow. How the fuck is that not a scalper deterrent? To actually physically have tickets on hand. Right. Like, what the fuck? What the fuck are we doing? Like, to me, saying that we're taking a certain amount of tickets, and we're inflating them a little bit, and we're donating the proceeds to charity, that doesn't... Where in that conversation does that deter scalpers i don't also like you're also just punishing your fans by asking them to pay a premium to come see you right and yes people are comfortable in doing that but the weird thing is like for an anti-capitalist uh machine uh it seems like you're just not even using uh capitalism against itself you're just literally punishing your fan base f- using the tool of capitalism yeah exactly like you're going to turn like it, it seems like every big concert that's going to be announced from now on is going to fuck over its its fans it's going to turn to this fucking model and they're just going to ignore it they're just gonna you know fucking i mean it's bad enough that tom morello's going on fucking twitter to defend all this shit i mean look at the fucking dude's bio i was like are you fucking kidding me i know i know it's, it's it's very yeah it's a it's very very like uh dissociative it is like the dude's in straight up fucking denial and he's gonna get it's, a hell of a fucking payday he's gonna get a fucking payday yeah of course they are uh the, the number of like so this is what i would have done for them if i really gave a shit about my fans this is what i would do right how many i can't remember how many dates there are but for each date or each venue what i would have done is um rolling 
ticket on sale days, right? So from like, you know, February 15th to like March, whatever, every day a new set of tickets go on sale, you have to show up at a specific place just like Nine Inch Nails did, right? And just allow people to buy tickets physically, give them the preference. Like, will you have scalpers in the bunch? Absolutely. But the thing is you need to to cap the number of tickets people can buy. And then like there are other measures in place that you can do that they're clearly not giving a shit about um, in the pursuit of a large paycheck because this seems like a very volatile group. It seems like they reunite very occasionally, probably due to the fact that like they don't get along, right? So the idea of trying to get as much money while they still can seems kind of to be the more likely scenario right now. I think it's really one member of that band that doesn't get along with the rest of them. <laughs> yes, yeah. And I mean, like, the other formed another band around him, right? So <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Like, fucking A. Like, I... I I am just disheartened at this point. Yeah. And like, I mentioned I was going to go see them in Ottawa. I don't know if I will, just based on principle. Like, it really it doesn't leave a good taste in my mouth to, like, to want to deal like, with uh, um, a band. They're like, yeah, it, it's fine for other bands who don't have such, or haven't historically had such a strong message against this exact sort of fucking thing. Yeah, exactly. And to now turn your back because this is a rare thing for them is absolutely fucking ridiculous and it's gonna get worse from here i I guarantee you the next big fucking either reunion show that somebody does or uh next big concert from somebody who hasn't you know toured in a few years it's going to fucking look like this and it's gonna look like this on down the line to the point where man you're gonna have to look for on like shows that have less demand in order to get good seats and like yeah like maybe there are some that that's not so bad but like god damn when you remove choice like that from people it is the worst fucking thing you can do i also think that like the the dynamic pricing like very quite honestly is just a form of fisting your fan base you know the thing is like okay so tom Morello was a part of profits of rage they toured mid-sized to large venues in the last couple of years to claim ignorance about Ticketmaster and StubHub doesn't make any sense to me because you are a touring musician of a certain stature. You know these things in and out in theory. Yeah, you do. You 100% know. The, like, do you not have, like, lawyers that work for your band and shit? Like, come on. You, you telling me you just, like, what, signed a contract willy-nilly? You didn't even fucking look at the fine print? Yeah, like it's it's very bothersome. To, like he has to spend his days on Twitter, sort of explaining the concept to people instead of like realizing, hey, maybe this system is fucked up. But on the other hand, like I don't know um, how much of it is like him uh, uh, being an active participant in all this, and how much he had to agree to to get to this point. That's a good. That's a good point uh, because what is this part of the uh, part of the agreement? You know, like Ticketmaster looks bad, so you got to go to fucking defend it online and. Yeah, Fuck. like, I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what the internal workings of their, um, you know, of their partnership looks like right now in 2020. Who knows if he was the member to sort of, like, talk against this or if he was the the one to sort of, like, bring this to the table. I'm not quite sure how they reached this conclusion necessarily. I'd be very interested to know, like, the real story behind, like, how they landed on this, given the fact that, like, once again, like, they have a very um, anti-capitalist agenda historically and then, like, just decided to be co-opted by this multinational that also owns a resale um, um, hub that, like, allows these tickets to, like, get sold there instantaneously. Yeah, and it kind of... It really bothers me that there's, like, the organization, the agencies in the government that are supposed to prevent shit like this from happening do not give a shit anymore. Like, 
monopolies are becoming such a big fucking problem that these agencies just don't care anymore. Like, yeah, half the time it's, and it's not even necessarily down political lines anymore because there was plenty of this during the Obama administration and just as much as it's during the Trump administration. For sure. Uh, For sure. It's just all about the fucking dollar at the end of the day for companies that make a fucking bajillion dollars on top of a bajillion dollars as it is. I, I, it's also a culture that sees like reunion tours as just uh, rolling sacks of cash coming into a building, right? So Yeah, depending on, uh, on the artist. I mean, how many fucking reunion tours have the Eagles done at this point? Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, and now there's like what, like you got Vince Gill up there with you guys too. Like it's just you know, and the the Guns N' Roses Not Your Lifetime tour was one of the top grossing of all time. Like, you know, there's a ton of this going on that I think that like th- we're gonna hit a saturation point where people will just get fed up and say I'm not paying 500 bucks for tickets. And uh, are we there yet? Definitely not. But I feel like there is a time in the future, especially with dynamic pricing, especially with these weird anti scalper pro scalper practices that like will rub people the wrong way and they'll just give up on um, going out like this. So then I guess one question that remains is if that does happen do you see ticketmaster then targeting like the smaller independent people somehow oh for sure yeah. definitely like you know the uh They'll definitely acquire like smaller and smaller venues in the city until they have a uh, control over a lot of the you know the smaller stuff because that if they realize that these are profit generating they're going to go towards them yeah and that is fucking de- depressing but you know what it's time for the bad boys to become the sad boys, Brian. <laughs> that was great, Rob. Yeah. Uh, so transitioning to our last news story, and uh, yeah, this was depressing as fuck, but it needs to be talked about because it's such a good article. Uh, ahead of the release of their first album of new material in nearly 20 years, Esquire ran a story featuring Huey Lewis and his struggles with hearing loss. Comedian Dave Holmes visited Lewis at his Montana ranch and interviewed the nearly 70-year-old musical artist. Holy fuck, I can't believe that dude is 70, because he sure as shit doesn't look like it. Yo, he looks great. Yeah, he does. Uh, The article details Huey Lewis's struggle with hearing loss after being diagnosed with Meniere's disease, an inner ear condition that has led to Lewis's inability to detect pitch and hear amplified music. Uh, This is big, especially when you consider how, like... And... Most people probably take advantage of Huey Lewis and the news, like, albums, but those things are meticulously crafted, whether you believe it or not. Like, the dude had influences. He wore them on his sleeve. Like, you can hear the R&B and the music that they're doing, but, like, he, they were able to successfully channel it into, like, an 80s pop outfit. So it's more intricate than I think a lot of people give it credit for. So that's pretty devastating the article does its best to paint the situation in as positive a light as possible jimmy kimmel relates how huey lewis and his music is a symbol of a better time which i would tend to agree with but uh holmes states in the article quote the temptation is to paint huey as a tragic figure out in the middle of nowhere waiting to see if his music career can come back to him as quickly and and mysteriously as it left him but I don't want to write a tragedy, not about Huey Lewis. A positive outlook is the one thing all the doctors have prescribed. And after all the plays I got out of sports and four and picture this, I owe him mine. If you know Huey, then you love him. And what is love if not belief and support? 
end quote. God damn it, Dave Holmes, you son of a bitch. That's so great. <laughs> so fucking I great. really enjoy this article because I often wonder what happened to Hugh Lewis, right? And I, I, it's very unfortunate that he's he's going through this. Like the one tool that you use to make your living, you can't even do that anymore. So I, the one thing, though, that I was hoping to get into in the article that they never touched upon is like, yeah, he's got a new album called Weather Out. Like how did they get to that point? And when was this all recorded? You know, like what are these tracks? How old are they? Like how has that process for him been? Yeah, and they never really touch on it at all. I mean, it gets the brief mention up front that, you know, they've got a new collection of songs. Like, it's really more of an EP than it is an album. But, uh, uh, Brian, what did you what did you think of Weather? I So, of the, the seven, I loved the first five. Mm-hmm. And then the last two kind of feel like pastiches of, like, older pop songs from, like, the, the 50s and 60s and 70s. Yeah. Um, so I wasn't beholden to them as much. Um, but I did love the first five kind of equally. And I, I listened to it, like, four or five times on Saturday. Also, the very unfortunate cover of, like, uh, the actual album cover of, like, Huey kind of looking, like, like shrugging a bit. It's it, – I don't know if I like it or not. It's uh, – <laughs> yeah, it's um, – I think it's fitting because, like – if you think of Huey Lewis himself as the weather, he's worn down, and you can see it in his face. He's doing his best to kind yeah, of smile through it. Yeah, but it seems it. like almost like a like a wow wow like kind of look to him. Yeah, in in a way, and like there were some of those photos in that article that kind of seemed that way. Like Brian, he he's Shawn Michaels, and he lost his smile. <laughs> <laughs> that is a very um, specific and point of reference that I very much appreciate, Rob. You know, I thought you would appreciate that, but it's very on point and like, ah, fuck, man. I didn't realize an article about Huey Lewis could really impact me in the way this this fucking has. Do you want to maybe talk about the, the sort of like, you, and you brought this up on the podcast before, but you had mentioned this very recently to me about the idea of him being the middle ground in the 80s? Yeah, exactly. Like, in the 80s, th- there was it was hard to find a middle ground between a lot of the synth poppy stuff, the hair metal that was going on and like the just straight up like overdone pop music. And then there's Huey Lewis who middle of the road is not meant to be like an insult in any way to his, his, his music, but it was just like he stood out for, Wearing his influences on his sleeves for doing a form of pop rock that is still kind of timeless today. Like, you could still go pick up sports, listen to it, and it's still fucking good. It's, like, I remember the first time that I bought sports. It was on iTunes, Brian. (laughs) And (laughs) But, like, the thing is, is, like, when I think of Huey Lewis's music... It's like a time capsule for me. Like whenever I, yeah, I agree with that. Whenever I feel like I, I've thought about his music, especially growing up, especially with the Back to the Future tracks, like um, there's an effort, there's like an effortlessness there. Like he's he's actually having fun with it. It's very like weird to think about it in context of like the overtly trite um, '80s pop music that was like largely being developed. Like it it it, it seems enjoyable. Yeah, exactly, and like. When you hear his voice, it's kind of like an every man's kind of voice. It's the voice that anybody can kind of identify with and recognize as the voice of someone who is like them and knows where they've been. And, like, 
I think what I loved about the article is like you got sides of Huey Lewis that you didn't know. Like I didn't know that his mom dated Charles Mingus. That's kind of wild. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't even realize that he co-produced uh, uh, Bruce Hornsby's "That's the Way It Is." Yeah, like the album. I didn't realize that he he produced several tracks on there, which is super cool because I've listened I've listened to that album a bunch um, growing up, and I never realized that. It's a fucking solid album too. I've, I've, it's probably my favorite Bruce Hornsby album, and I mean, uh, "That's the Way It Is" is like one of the most iconic songs now because of you know tupac so fucking the gift that keeps on giving and and i think the most wild thing about huey lewis in the news that i love is that when elvis costello came to the states he was their backing band <laughs> yeah yeah like how great is that yeah. i mean it also mentioned the fact that he ended up um in europe just as punk was breaking too which i i didn't know much about which i thought was kind of cool to learn yeah that is uh, a cool fucking factoid in this goddamn article that uh made me tear up and it's a good snapshot of a person and where they're at right now it's it's very unfortunate that he's going through this and um especially towards the end when he's talking about the the hearing aid stuff uh really affected me like the idea of having good days and bad days and like the thing is like the one thing you really want to do you can't necessarily do yeah exactly and like when you have to rate uh the pet the 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 thing that you do on a scale of like one to ten it's so fucking heartbreaking yeah um thanks rob yeah no problem uh so here's my (laughs) my instruction to all you listeners i want you to i want you to go listen to weather i want you to go listen to picture this i want you to go listen to fucking sports like i've been listening to fucking heart and soul all weekend because it's just a song it's a fucking banger song and that guitar on there is so fucking great and uh you know this is a sad moment but like fucking play those tunes play them loud you know fucking let those tunes live on so now that we've all bummed you out uh brian let's uh let's head on over to the main section of this episode deal winter it's a word that incites equal feelings of excitement and anxiety if you've lived in the northern hemisphere you know that winter can last about seven years in a stretch We make it worse on ourselves, allowing a groundhog to determine how long it will inevitably last. For me, I grew up in a small town that embraced the season. Saranac Lake is famous for its winter carnival, which attracts thousands of tourists to northern New York to take in the snow-covered ice caps, the shitty roads, and the skiing, as well as our ice palaces. I've always had a fondness for the season, even if I don't like moving snow from one area to another. Brian, on the other hand, just fucking hates it. Correct. Since 2017, Spotify has published daily tables of the top 200 songs streamed on any given day. The gloomiest month for releases every year? Yep, you guessed it. February. For the main feature of this episode, Brian and I have chosen a handful of releases that help us get through these gray months. My picks will very much be reflective of the season. Brian's, maybe not so much. But, uh, Brian, kick us off with this, man. What's the what's the release that you really love? Uh, Rob, you're actually quite wrong. Oh, am I? 
Yes. Let me explain to you why. Uh, um, in the summer months, I decide to go straight into the darkness. I don't shy away from the darkness. I embrace the darkness. Uh, I hate this uh, uh, season. I uh, abhor the cold. I don't know why I live here. I mentioned last episode that I, you know, uh, am done with this eternally. Uh, and with that, I uh, I find solace in the songs that also remind me of winter and sound like winter uh, to know that I'm actually not alone. And Brian went full on emo on us. Great. Fantastic. Awesome, man. So what's what's your first selection here? I'm, I'm kind of curious. Okay. So it's actually two albums, right? So um, there yeah. is a group, a Canadian group called Winter Sleep that uh, formed in the Maritimes um, in uh, the early 2000s. And they have two albums. They have Winter Sleep and Untitled. And uh, the first album in particular is a very wintry album. There are literal sounds of wind in there like on the album itself uh when you listen to it and then they have tracks called like avalanche and snowstorm and um things like that that sort of like evoke um uh, this kind of like a wintry sense right so i really really uh, enjoy that album and the next one untitled also has uh tracks like uh listen 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 and insomnia that also evoke uh very cold feelings in me and uh they kind of went more uh, less atmospheric and more kind of like regular rock and they also moved to Montreal at one point I don't know if there's a correlation between the two but uh, their earlier Maritimes uh, uh, efforts are definitely worth listening to I have not listened to these so I will have to go listen to these because I feel like they're very they're very Rob albums actually you, you okay good I dig that I, uh, I I'm looking forward to listening to those now <laughs> So perfect. So what do you what do you got to do for us? Oh, my first one. To me, the sounds of winter are uh, at least musically are really echoey Telecasters, really echoey vocals, kind of slowed down songs. Um, and one that I return to year after year around this time is uh, Fox Confessor Brings the Flood by Nico Case. It's just oh nice. Yeah, it's just one of those albums that's like it very much captures it. It feels like snow in your ears. Like that's the only way I could really describe it is that you get a sense of the season that she's singing in because it definitely feels like she's singing in a particular season. I mean, um, the production is very echoey. Uh, the, the, the guitars sound like, the the crackle of an open fire to me and uh it's i just love it man i just love it i remember bugging nico case on twitter for the longest time about when fox confessor brings the flood would be released on vinyl because she was starting to re-release her stuff and and she and like one time she did get back to me she's like oh wait hold on let me go ask my uh let me go ask my vinyl guy and i'm like yes (laughs) <laughs> yes. I uh the internet yeah. and the power of it. Yeah, uh I uh I bonded with um Nico Case once over toilets, so you know, anything is possible on Twitter. <laughs> I uh, didn't think I'd wake up hearing that sentence today, Rob. So thank you very, very much for that. <laughs> I, I know, man, I know, but like I I like to bring the good shit to the table, literally. <laughs> <laughs> uh I love the fact that you uh 
I hope that was a pun on the fly. I hope that wasn't like a planned pun that you were trying to insert in there. No, man. It was an organic one. No, it was totally organic. I respect that. I respect that. Uh, my second choice is an album that doesn't get a lot of love. It is an album from Thrace singer Dustin Kensrue. So he put out an album 11 or 12 years ago called Please Come Home. Mm-hmm. And the closer on there is a track that's called Blanket of Ghosts. And it opens with um, an old school, um, you know, uh, wordless or keyboard sound. And it's a very kind of like sad song about like being followed around by like those that you're not with anymore. Whether that's literal or figurative, I'm not quite sure. But Whenever I hear that song, I always think of like walking around uh, in the cold and it it very much evokes the idea of like, I can't listen to this during the summer. It needs to be like jacket weather music. Oh, yeah, that's uh, you need to put on the warm coat and uh, just like hug yourself a little tighter. Keep that warmth in. I mean, the entire album is like very much like a worth listening to, but especially like it's not very long; it's eight or nine songs. But like that last track in particular is like the one that you want to go to and listen to. Yeah, it's uh, just pluck it right off there, put it in a uh, playlist. It's it's done good and done. Yep, you know, it's like which is something that if Angelo is listening to this, is probably a crime against humanity for him. But, uh, <laughs> you know, whatever. He's not here right now, so it's fine. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, this is our podcast anyway. <laughs> what is your second pick rob uh my second pick is actually an ep actually i'm gonna do a couple eps here because they're you know really short but uh, uh the first is a uh, called winter by a, a pair of artists called jack and white now um jack matranga what band was he in i can't even remember what like emo band he was in at the time um and Brooke White, who was on American Idol, they came together and they recorded. They've recorded a bunch of music together. Um, they did a lot of EPs. They did one album, I think, in about five years ago. And like, I was kind of off and on with their short little output. But uh, Winter is one of those. It's it's just like a four song EP that I kind of come back to uh, every now and then. And uh, there's a song on it, and it's called XYZ. It's a really wonderful track. It it, um, it sounds to me like I always associate these songs and these albums with, like, how they make me feel and, like, where they put me in my headspace. And this feels like a song about, you know, you're in a cabin next to a fire, and it's snowing outside, and you're dealing with life and it's very much a song about how life's unfair, but you know what? You keep going on, you dust it off and you just keep moving forward with things. So uh, really that's the one track off that EP that I returned to, but it's a pretty good EP. And the second EP is um, winter songs by Matt Pond PA, which is uh, fantastic. It, it's a snow day and there's a song on it called snow day. Which is which is really great. It's like one of the few originals that he wrote on there. But there's a lot of great covers. Uh, there's a Neil Young cover on there. Um, there's a, yeah, he does a cover of Winter Long. They do a cover of uh, In the Airplane Over the Sea, which makes it seem really like wintry, which is great. Uh, there's a lot of covers on there. Love that album. Uh, I've been a big fan of Matt Pond PA for a long ass time, and I'm sad that their that outfit is now done. But um, that uh, that is one uh, EP that I return to from time to time. It's a, it's just a really great like 
album to or EP to put on and stare out at a window to the falling snow. It's really great. So would you do you listen to that in the summer, though? Like, are you one of those people who's like, oh, I can do this kind of like, you know, all throughout the year? If I'm really hot, like at work and I need something to remind me of like the season that I really love. Yeah, I'll throw it on. Like there, there are a couple of things that I'll throw on. It Fair depends. enough. Yeah, uh, Brian, your your next pick. So I'm actually going to do two picks too, okay. uh, and they're sort of interrelated, very on a like a high level, right? So, um, uh, my next pick is by a rapper duo. Uh, the project is called Leak Brothers or Leak Bros, and uh, these are two East Coast rappers. So it's Cage Kennels and Tame One, and this is an album that came out in 2004. It's called Waterworld. And it is a very bleak album about using PCP and the effects it has on your life. <laughs> so, um, so there are utterly sparse beats that make me think of like wearing a puffy jacket late at night while like it snows hard, and uh, a lot of like rapping about how like it's 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 not a good lifestyle to live. So, um, tracks on there include "Got Wet" and "Dead." It has this like vintage old school East Coast fire, um, brought to you by East Conference Records from like 2000 2001 onwards. And then if you want to go deeper into the darkness, because Cage is one of my favorite rappers of an era, he has a song uh, that samples Built to Spell, and it's called Ballad of Worms, and it's basically all about uh, being in a relationship with a junkie, uh, which is real bright stuff to think about. Um, so like I said before, like when I go into the darkness, I really, really go into the darkness. It is worth at least one listen. Um, it's like a realistic Insane Clown Posse album, if that makes sense to you. I don't even want to think about what that would be like, <laughs> to, to be honest with you. Like, uh, I... There's a the thing is like these this is these are events and things that like these people have lived like yeah. Cage has a documented um, um, drug dependency issue and um, thankfully it, it seems like he's clean now but for a time yeah there's definitely like some suggestion there that he unfortunately um, had substance issues Brian going into the depths of the darkness to wow hit us hit us in the feels man hit us hard yeah uh so also um sort of related i was mentioning is the def jux act cannibal ox and their 2001 bleak masterpiece the cold vein um uh, i'll have time signature raps big atmospheric beats um it literally is like a 70 minute soundscape it feels like listening to like a weird dream about being like trapped in a snowbank for like an hour plus it is definitely worth listening to at least once from start to finish it's not one of those where like you can pull a song off and sort of like enjoy it it has to be within the context of this like uh, musical soundscape that like got created hot damn like this yeah. reminds me of uh being at work and one of my co-workers telling me his drug stories like repeatedly <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's definitely uh uh not for everyone um especially like the leak brothers and the the cage stuff the cannibal Ox stuff is a little more accessible in terms of like uh if you don't want to hear about that then like here's this but it's definitely not uh, for everyone. <laughs> yeah yeah i can i can understand <laughs> what do you got rob um you know, I'll I'll finish off mine. I got I got two left here, and uh, uh, the first one is an artist that uh, was actually discovered by Robert Pattinson, and uh, he hasn't really achieved a level of fame in the states. I think he's a little more well known over in the UK. But uh, it's an album called uh, Winter Tale by Bobby Long, and Bobby Long is a singer songwriter, uh, really hollow vocals really sparse guitar other uh, songs that do have like a uh, real uh, a lot of production value the title track winter tale is a really great song but uh, a lot of them are just you know bobby long and uh, guitar and just 
playing you through the season, and it's uh, it's a great listen to. It's probably a sad bastardy pick, so it's up my alley. And, uh, <laughs> exactly, I was literally about to say that. Yeah, and uh, it's definitely definitely on point for me. Uh, if you've never listened to Bobby Long, please go listen to him. This album is like it's over like ten years old, I think, at this point, but it's it's really good. And uh, my final choice is um, "I and Love and You" by the Avett Brothers, and uh, I've been a fan of the Avett Brothers for a long ass time, and they kind of they've done their own thing, and they've been able to achieve a level of kind of like fame to the point where they were able to work with Rick Rubin on this project. And granted, I don't have the highest opinion of Rick Rubin. I think he, you know, for some artists, especially more Americana artists, he kind of, he lets them do what they want to do and is able to capture it well on, uh, on yeah. tape. He's less, he's less of a producer, more of a filter almost. Yeah. In, in those situations, I and loving you, what makes it a winter album for me is the piano in that throughout that entire album. Like it just makes me think of someone walking down a street in New York city in winter snows falling all around them. But like there's, songs on there that are like uh just fun bangers like kick drum heart is a great fucking song i've always loved that song um uh head full of doubt road full of promises like if you've never seen the music video for that song please do it's like a song about change and like how you can't really stop it right. and and like being able to see it as it's happening in, in real time. And like, I mean, I and loving you is the title track is, uh, it's fucking bittersweet and shit, but like <laughs> there's, there's a lot of ups and downs on that album, which I can appreciate because like, I don't think of winter necessarily as one giant down or one giant up and you get the kind of bell curve in there, which is great. And I mean, you can't go wrong with a good Avett Brothers album. I haven't liked their last few that they put out because they've been moving in a different direction, but, you know, that's a band that's trying to test out new grounds, trying to see where their music is going to lead them, and I can respect that. I will miss the I and Loving You days, but, uh, you know, here's to... Musical growth, I guess. That's kind of like, exactly, that's kind of like the paradox, right? Is that if they hadn't continued to grow, then you'd be saying, why are they redoing this album? Or right. But yet, you know, if they go into a different direction, unfortunately, slash fortunately, you never know what it'll end up. Right. I had a former friend that, like, hate, like, would trash on Thrice, to bring it back to Dustin Getzer. But, like, they would trash on them because they basically didn't keep making the artist in the ambulance, like, over and over and over again. And I'm like... That's not growth. Like no, if not at all. If you are uh, not growing, then you're basically you're fucking ACDC. Let's be honest. Yeah, I think they are like the biggest kind of example of um, plateauing artistically, but still yeah being successful at it. Yeah, they've also they put out like plateau- what, two albums in the last like two decades. Like, yeah. They plateaued in 1980, and they've ridden the success since then. 
Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I'm going to do my two last picks very quickly, Rob. Yes. Um, the first one is The Cure, 17 Seconds. So um, a sad clown Robert Smith has been able uh, to bring down the mood in any room for decades now. And uh, the, uh, 17 Seconds is their second full album, but really their first big crowning achievement um, and a clear indicator of like a, a very interesting career path, which isn't necessarily like ACDC like, but like definitely like when you listen to most Cure records, um, there is like a through line to it. So there's songs on there like um, Play for Today as well as um, uh, probably like the biggest quote unquote hit, which is A Forest, which is a song that is on the record for about five and a half minutes. But like when it's played live, um, it can last like 12 to 13 to 14 minutes. And uh, that's uh, the versions that you guys should all be uh, listening to out there. But it definitely is. Uh, it makes me feel like uh, I'm listening to like a quaint um, album uh, in the middle of like the English countryside and everything's super shitty and like I can't leave. <laughs> Embracing the darkness, Brian Hasty. So I'm going to continue with my last one, which is Neil Young's On the Beach, which is one of his uh, um, a lesser known albums from like his most uh, popular period, I guess, because it came out in 74. It's definitely one of his bleakest efforts. Uh, if you listen to the title track and read the lyrics, he references his loneliness. And um, the instrumentation also kind of sounds like Black Sabbath's Planet Caravan. There's like um, there's some tabla in there. There's like really sad, remorseful shit. And then he also has a song called Revolution Blues, which is all about a militia taking arms. <laughs> um it definitely uh, it suggests a certain state of mind that, like, he clearly is in a certain place. Um, not the best one either. And also, like, on there is, like, Vampire Blue is another one there that just kind of brings the mood down. But definitely, like, the biggest downer Neil Young album I can think of when I think of, of going through his discography, which is now quite expensive. Yeah, it plays into that trilogy of albums from Time Fades Away, On the Beach, Tonight's the Night. Um so yeah, the first and third I feel like um, got much more popular claim and interest versus like the middle one, which kind of like was out there, did fine, and then kind of like dropped off. He also was like very reticent to release it on CD mm-hmm. um, for a while, which is why it took forever to, for it to sort of like show up in the I think mid two thousands at this point. Yeah, I remember when we first started to sell it at Ames because uh, uh, oh sorry for those that don't know, we used to have department stores in the New England area called Ames Department Stores, and uh, I worked at one for about a year, year and a half, I worked in the electronics section, but they started to re-release those, like, it was on the on the beach, Reactor. Yeah, they're like three, and yeah. Trans, maybe? Uh, I think they're yeah. like three or four. Yeah, and uh, th- that was when they were first being put out on CD, but I remember it just, like, kind of hanging around, and, like, like, the title of it is not appealing. No, no, it's it's very it's yeah, uh, it's a very odd project I think in terms of like where it lands um in his discography, but it's fine. I really enjoy it. I embrace it. Once again, looking into the darkness. Yeah, well, I mean, like it, it was made in you know the the shadow of the death of a band mem- band member. So yeah, right. That's uh, that's very fitting, and um, I love that huge sigh at the end. Like I, I, I feel like this is kind of like the huge sigh is uh, the spirit animal of this entire. Segment. Yeah, I I agree, and. Uh, now that we've endured the longest winter, let us head on over to that blazing hot cup of cocoa that we call the B-Side. Welcome to the B-Side. Now that you're holding that cup of cocoa in your hands and it's really warm, Brian, hit us with your B-Side recommendation for this episode. Rob, you cannot believe how unbelievably excited I was to share this one with you. It is a compilation that came out on February 14th. On Valentine's Day, excellent. Yes, it is called Dead Bodies Everywhere, a slam and death tribute to new metal. Rob, 
It is incredible. <laughs> it is. Uh, um, do you want to hear a, an insane seven minute death metal take on Disturbs Down with the Sickness, complete with those like weird cricket style vocals that like s- sometimes like happen when it's like gore grind? <laughs> uh, this comp has it. Do you want to hear an absolutely insane take on Slipknot's duality by uh, Russian band Smothered Bowels? This is your place, Rob. Uh, also, the shining silver diamond star in the sky of this is a cover of Corn's Blind by Omni Express, and it is, I think, the only track that's also available on Spotify for streaming. Um, so I'm definitely gonna ask you to add this but it is it is fucking incredible rob i've been listening to this on and off for the last couple of days annoying everyone around me so many interesting weird choices and also like um to those who aren't like well versed in uh slam death gore grind and all those things definitely not a very like listener friendly first place to start but uh to those who enjoy it and to those who really enjoyed the songs on there it is fucking weird to hear some of this Dude, you're fucking taking a page out of my fucking book. And this is all because <laughs> I recommended a goddamn book, isn't it? A little bit. I was just trying to see where this would take you. Because I, I can't wait for you to listen to the Omni Express cover of Blind and just be like, I don't know what I just heard. I'm so excited for that. Can't wait to put it on the playlist for this fucking episode. So, also related, I created a six-song playlist of um, covers of uh, Korn's Blind that you can find <laughs> on Spotify. So, I'm going to send that your way. <laughs> are they uh are they in order of how good you think they are yes there's uh so the weirdest one is an aquabat song that's actually not named that but they they play the background instrumentation to blind while complaining about things which i thought was kind of weird and fun um and then there's like some that kind of sound like it and there are others like the omni express that just like go a little too extreme for most people but for me just fine (laughs) for brian hasty just fucking fine (laughs) Holy fucking Jesus Christ. Rob, what do you got for us? Uh, I'm I'm a little more serious this week. I don't have a single song. I don't have an, uh, a book. I do have an album this week. Uh, if I had known about this artist last year, I probably this album would have been in my top ten. Uh, it came out in August of 2019. Uh, it's an album called Love in the Dark, and it's by an artist named Jason Hawk Harris. Uh, Jason Hawk Harris, he's Jason Isbell kind of adjacent, but like he puts a lot more production into his style of Americana. And uh, you're getting a lot of like, there's a lot of country on this. There's a lot of, you know, uh, roots country kind of stuff here but like there's also just some just like great production choices the one song that i really want to highlight and it uh truly plays up my sad bastard fucking motif here (laughs) is a song called phantom limb which is a song about him losing his mother and he has this shirt that is hers and it was pretty much the shirt that she was wearing when she died and he ke- he keeps talking about how he can't get this smell out of this shirt and it just won't go away but uh i think what's amazing about the song is uh for the first 3 minutes you're getting this really intense tale and then for the last two it's a goddamn pink floyd era fucking guitar solo and i love every really? f- yeah it's really fucking like a classic david gilmore song yeah it's very david gilmore like comfortably numb-esque kind of guitar it's really fucking great um there's a lot of great songs here there's a song called cussing at the light which is basically kind of a um it's uh, it's an indictment of like the catholic church and stuff it's, it's pretty fucking great <laughs> um i like how you said 
an indictment of and then seconds later said pretty fucking great yeah. really <laughs> yeah uh this sounds super interesting i'm uh anything just jason isabel sort of like a jason I'm, I'm into right so uh yeah let's uh i want to check that out um as always rob you uh are the master curator of the coda podcast playlist so <laughs> probably be on there it'll be on there I'll, I'll put a couple more tracks on here since we can only put uh that cover of corn's blind on the, mm. <laughs> the playlist by the way i already i already dm'd you the spotify i, I we did see that come up on my <laughs> notifications and i can't wait to uh very excited i can't wait to fucking um I don't even fucking know. Endure it. <laughs> Endure it. Yeah, endurance probably. Uh, yeah, th- that's an apt word for it. Wait, hold on. Before I forget, our uh, uh, band camp, I read the weirdest description of one of the tracks on here, which is, it's true. It is a cover of Crazy Town's Butterfly that just sounds nothing like it. Okay. Um, And let me read the description of what they wrote. Please do. So this jar of music is gore noise with water vocals. <laughs> Rob, it sounds like someone's hitting a bong while listening to music way too loudly. It is truly insanely awful and is probably the low point here. But uh, yeah, who knows? I Taste is all relative. Uh, taste is all relative. And <laughs> if you want to let us know what your taste is, you can email us, thecodacast at gmail.com. We are the Coda Podcast on Twitter and on Instagram. As always, you can find playlists of carefully curated songs mentioned in every episode. I construct these myself. I spend hours working on these fucking playlists. Please it's true. go listen it's to them. True. Like, yeah, the last couple have been really long. I think this one will be a little bit shorter, but uh, you need to check out these playlists. Do you want me to just yell out songs now to add in there? <laughs> no. Just to really to like pad out the, the runtime. <laughs> I promise. I promise I won't do that. Are you sure? Yes. No. Yes. <laughs> okay. Anything to get you off of here so you can go listen to Corn's Blind quickly is a thing I'm into. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, uh, to be honest, when we did the first episode, <laughs> I hadn't listened to Corn's Blind in probably two decades, but... Now you're surrounded by Now it. I cannot escape this fucking song. What's <laughs> going on? It's fine. It's fine, Rob. Just live with it. Just breathe in and breathe out. You know, let it be part of your atmosphere. I feel like you're... I feel like I force Radio Rock onto you, and you you force Sad Bastard singer-songwriter stuff onto me. Yeah. It's... And I feel like it's a good trade-off, because, like, we're both enjoying the fruits of these, like, very strange labors. Yeah. Uh, I agree, and, like, I think we're trying to just wear each other down at this point. Like... <laughs> So 12 months from now, we're just going to be swinging each other over and over and over, and that's just an episode in the can. Yeah, exactly. You know, I'm going to say fuck at you like 5,000 times, and, you know, it's uh, it's going to set some kind of fucking record. Cool, cool, cool. Let's just uh, let's continue this downward decline, I guess. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, uh, continue this downward decline into your playlists, and folks, don't forget to keep the cans on. <laughs> <laughs>